Ultimate Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. Welcome to FW Team Up, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Siskoid. And I'm Tim Price. Taking you through a classic superhero team-up, Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate Fantastic Four from Ultimate, I'm going to say Ultimate a lot, Ultimate Marvel <laughs> Team-Up, cover dated December 2001. And Tim, well, this is actually the first time the show's gone to Ultimate Marvel. That's excellent. And does that make us, the, does that make you the Ultimate Siskoid? And, <laughs> and the you ultimate the Ultimate Tim, Tim Price? Yeah. Yeah. Or, or the Ultimate Time Priest. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah. I wonder that, what yeah. uh, the Ultimate Siskoid, how different he is from the, the normal universe Siskoid. I guess he's younger. That might be it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, according to the, the comics, anyway. In each episode of FW Team Up, one panelist will pick one character or group to defend. So in this case, Tim, what's your pick? I am taking Ultimate Spider-Man. So I will take Ultimate FF. As is customary, we preface with a reason or reasons why we like the character we've chosen. So Tim, what's so great about Ultimate Spider-Man or Ultimate Peter Parker, I should probably clarify, because... Because today, Ultimate Spider-Man is Miles Morales, but back then, it was still Peter Parker. Yes, indeed. And even the Ultimate Spider-Man cartoon series has been on in the meantime as well. So just the Mighty the Waters even more. But in this era's Ultimate Peter Parker, I think the best thing about him was that they kept him a teenager in high school. You know, in the original version of Spider-Man, he graduated within three or four years of his introduction. Um, so this is still Peter like the one we know in almost every way, but they kept him young, so it lets Peter be more immature. He makes mistakes. He can show that he's smart, but not always wise. And he's much more dependent on his Aunt May for support, both emotional and financial. So as a modern retelling of Spider-Man's story, uh, the creators could have some fun with the situation, like the villains and others questioning Spider-Man's age. And it's no wonder that many elements of this series were picked up by every Spider-Man movie since Tobey Maguire's first one. They play well to a modern audience. Yeah, I think there's a lot of the ultimate Marvel in the movies, regardless of the property, not just Spider-Man, but in the others as well. It's like, well, this is how to retell it modern style rather than 1960s style. So, of course, it speaks to a more modern audience, which is the movie's audiences, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Although we haven't seen like a Spider-Man that is like the Spider-Man we have now. Isn't working at the Daily Bugle like in the, like in Ultimate's case he was uh, like the webmaster for their right for their website. <laughs> uh, time to modernize. Uh, we haven't even seen that. You know we haven't seen mm -hmm. the the current Spider Man does not work and I guess will never work based based on the right. the, the the far from home um, coda will never work at the Daily Bugle. I don't know. That almost like plays to J Michael Straczynski's run on Amazing Spider Man where Peter was practically an employee of. Iron Man during that series. Right. So we kind of saw that happening here as well. But it's like, oh, yeah, the, the big twist at the end of, of uh, Far From Home. It's like, no, there's no way Peter can have the, the secret identity genie is out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. So that's that's all there is. So it completely changes the dynamic going forward. I, I don't even know if there's a bugle in that sense, since, uh, you know, uh, J. Joe mm -hmm. Jameson is more of a, a, a Fox News uh, editorialist kind of kind of dude. We'll, we'll see. We weren't sure we got to see, but we will see. Ultimate FF. That, that's the one I'm chosen. What do I like about the Ultimate FF? That's it's not easy to say at this point because this is their introduction. I admit this is the only story of theirs that I read, and here they're played for laughs. So regardless, I like uh, the slight update in the origin story, and that it is not one of the new FF movies since. Not that I've seen it, but but uh, <laughs> but they do a thing where, and we'll talk about it a bit. But instead of a going into space, creating a space plane today would not be like this big grand experiment ahead of its time. Uh, so instead, they go into the negative zone. They discover the negative zone and go in there. So that that slight update. Uh, which still plays with FF history, uh, makes perfect sense in a modern context where we already have astronauts, where the space race has been won and forgotten at this point. So that's cool. It's also what they did in the Fantastic Four movie, the last one, uh, even though, I guess, they screwed everything up, aside from right. that. 
Yeah. I don't know. Have you seen that one? Have you seen that movie? I have not seen that one. I saw the previous two Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four movies, but not that one. And that was still in the same vein as what they did, even with the first of the FF movies, kind of changing the origin to being uh, the space station experiment happening. Right. It's not a bad way to go. I mean, they could have gone more Star Trek sort of level of space travel if they really wanted to push, you know, the smarts of Reed Richards and stuff. But tying them to the negative zone is fine because that's such an important part of the FF history. The exploration, the the discovery of the negative zone and all the villains that come from it. So it it just is nice fodder and a great way to quickly introduce those kind of characters if they wanted to. So it's interesting that they they bring this forward here because it's basically the origin, the first origin of the Ultimate FF. They they do not exist in the universe Mm -hmm. previous to this team-up issue. And I guess it's one way to... um, to use the team-up format when you're rebooting a universe. And I've often thought that they should have resurrected some of these kinds of books when they rebooted the DC universe, for example, um, with with the Mm -hmm. New 52. Instead of having... Instead of launching all these series and, uh, you know, having to... To, to bail out of them about at the eight issue mark or something. So, oh, well, I guess nobody likes it. You mm-hmm. could have done a team up book like classic style where each issue you are introduced to a new character that is reoriginated in, in this way and uh, reintroduced for the current audience. And then if people really dig the new version, then you spin them out into series. So I've often thought that that would have been one way to go. And they did it with a number of characters in the ultimate team up uh, books not not every issue sometimes you know sometimes you had established characters that's your still your bread and butter you, you need familiarity but in this case shang chi and punisher I mean, even punisher i think like the ultimate punisher had not appeared until the team up uh, book i don't think i may be wrong i'm not sure about i don't the think so either i don't yeah. think so either i think this was his first time too and i and i agree completely that's one of the reasons i picked up this series back when it came out being a fan of the original marvel team up that's not a hard sell mm. already. But you can tell that its mission was to expand the universe in a quick fashion because you already had only had Spider-Man and X-Men titles. Those were the only two. But they wanted to kind of give the feel of the bigger Marvel universe and explore it. And this is, a, as, as you said, this is a great way to do it without a huge investment because they still had the main comic book series going on at the same time. So they're not going to try to compete with themselves too much. But it was way fun way to introduce them and bring some characters in. And this issue itself also kind of highlights one of the problems they ran into because the Ultimate Universe's overall mission statement was to be more new reader friendly and have less confusing continuity. But they had several characters that appeared in this series that soon afterwards were reintroduced in some other Ultimate title and a completely different character. Mm -hmm. So the team-up version of that character was Moot already. So (laughs) the the plan to keep the continuity simple, they they managed to uh, ruin it outright. If you consider Marvel team-up to be 100% canon of the Ultimate Universe, the first appearance of Nick Fury was in Ultimate Marvel Team-Up. I think it was the issue that guest starred Black Widow specifically. But he looks like the standard Marvel Universe Nick Fury in that issue, not Samuel Jackson. And when they started the Ultimates series, that's when they had the new Samuel Jackson look for Nick Fury. So what happened to that Nick Fury? Did he just get retconned? Is there an Ultimate Kang who came back in time and messed things up? No idea. (laughs) And I think they just kind of like, let's not worry about it too much. Mm. And I think the issue that we're going to cover today (laughs) is told in such a style as to say maybe Mm -hmm. Marvel Team-Up is not canon. (laughs) I I think that's a fair statement. (laughs) Uh, You'll see. Uh, So let's talk about publication histories. What can you tell us, Tim, about Ultimate Peter Parker's publication history? Okay, well, he debuted in Ultimate Spider-Man number one, no surprise that, uh, from the year 2000 as the first series in Marvel's Ultimate line of comics. Uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis and penciled by Mark Bagley. The two of them went on to surpass Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's record for consecutive issues with the same writer and penciler team, working on 111 issues total together, giving us ultimate versions of The Green Goblin, Kingpin, Venom, Dr. Octopus, Carnage, Black Cat, and even clones along the way. Uh, Bendis continued as the writer of the series all the way until its conclusion in 2009 with the death of Ultimate Peter Parker in issue number 160. Then in 2011, this led to the introduction of Bendis' character Miles Morales 
as the new Ultimate Spider-Man. Eventually, Miles met 616 Peter Parker in 2012's Spider-Men miniseries, but shortly after that, it was revealed that Ultimate Peter was still alive, but chose to let Miles carry the responsibility of being Spider-Man. Along came 2015's Secret Wars event, which brought Miles into the 616 universe. And a second Spider-Man miniseries in 2017 finished with a scene in the current Ultimate Universe, the scene drawn by Mark Bagley, showing that Ultimate Peter was back in the webs in the Ultimate Universe. Okay. It's convoluted. It's Marvel. Uh, (laughs) Ultimate or not, (laughs) it gets convoluted. As for the Ultimate Universe's Fantastic Four, they first appeared in this issue of Ultimate Marvel Team Up number uh, number nine, uh, the one we're covering, in uh, 2001, before starring in their own series, which ran 60 issues from 2004 to 2009, where they were mostly written by Brian Michael Bendis, Mark Miller, and Warren Ellis, although there were quite a few writers there, uh, with art by such luminaries as Adam Kubert, Stuart Amonin, and Jay Lee. It was basically the fifth Ultimate series behind Spider-Man, X-Men, Ultimates, and Marvel Team-Up. And in Team-Up, they are rather close to the main universe's FF, uh, but with an updated origin. The series sought to differentiate them further with a costume redesign by Brian Hitch and making all of them teenagers. Like Ultimate Siskoid, they were younger, is what it is. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Warren Ellis would introduce Doctor Doom as Victor Van Damme. No relation, a descendant of Dracula, actually, and other crazy changes. And in 2014, uh, we have Joshua Fialkov and Stuart Moore, who helmed the new volume, simply titled Ultimate FF, this time for First Foundation, because there was more than four members. It featured the Invisible Woman, but the rest of the cast was filled with such characters as Machine Man, Falcon, Iron Man, Phil Coulson, and Van Damme himself. It was canceled after six years. Issues. Another thing about this version of Ultimate Fantastic Four is it also appeared in 2002's Ultimate Spider-Man Super Special as sort of a coda to the Ultimate Marvel team-up series. Was it in the same humorous style? No, it was a much more serious okay. uh, tone. Spider-Man trying to see if he could get financial help from the Fantastic Four and then basically admitting that they're broke. Um, and also Johnny Storm having a one-on-one moment with him saying that... He, he was in therapy, and basically he'd love to hang out with Spider-Man more because he basically has no friends anymore. So really pretty dark little moment. But that whole issue was a big old jam of in Bendis' style of him, of Spider-Man having a, pa- a page or two with characters that we met in the Ultimate Team-Up series. Okay, because I was wondering if, if the intent had always been for the Fantastic Four to be these sort of, well, Deadpool characters, basically. Uh, very meta, humorous. In the Ultimate Universe, we don't want to use the Fantastic Four particularly, so we're just using them for, you know, shits and giggles. But if the, their very next appearance, they were played for straight, then this really is the kooky, one-off, <laughs> totally mm-hmm. different issue is this one, the Marvel Team-Up uh, number nine. So we might as well get into it, and tell people uh, what the story was. So uh, come with us to our synopsis area. It's like a danger room. It's called Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four. They didn't have titles. By writer Brian Michael Bendis and artist Jim Mafood. High schooler Peter Parker is in the Baxter Building's waiting room. A colander with various sci-fi doodads and a distinctive logo of the number four strapped to his head. The FF's robot majordomo Herbie asks, Reason for visiting the Baxter building today, Mr. Parker? Uh, I'm from Midtown High. I'm supposed to career shadow Reed Richards. And where did you get your extra human powers from, Mr. Parker? What? No, I don't have any... Well then, I suppose the costume in your knapsack is just for parties. Ah, all seems to be in order. But we ask that you not wear your mask or use your powers while here. Before you're allowed on the laboratory floor, it is required that you watch the following video. Video? PR person Patsy Walker's video orientation explains who the Fantastic Four are, how genius Reed Richards discovered the negative zone and mounted an expedition into it with his team, how they discovered such alien species as the Kree and the Skrulls there, and how today they guard the portal to the zone in the Baxter building. Now you're ready to meet the Fantastic Four, Peter Parker, and mm, they're arguing over a giant broken coffee machine. Oh well, if you're going to be their intern, you should go get the coffee. 
No time to argue, young man. That alarm means a call to action. Flame on and FF assemble and all that jazz. The not-intern, Peter, heads off to get coffee. Perhaps distracted by his heavily censored monologue, stumbles into the negative zone portal room, and angry virtual Herbie's security system activates. Bada bada puyee! Peter dodges the blasts, but with a zakaboomba, those are authentic sound effects from the comic, by the way, a stray shot opens the portal, and a hordle of scrolls pours forth, carrying boomboxes, burritos, chips and salsa, honking big guns, and mega death rays of death. The scrolls want Reed Richards. Rampaging ensues, terrifying civilians, and quick change artist Spidey tries to convince the scrolls that he is Reed. Good news, it worked! Bad news, it worked. The Spidey Scroll sortie scuffles through the Marvel offices. With so many scrolls to draw, is all hope lost for the comic's hapless artist? The Fantastic Four to the rescue. Reed Richards zaps the Skrull army with his antimatter negative zone nullifier B200, and back they go. But not before making a threat by quoting Superman the movie. You will bow down before me! Both you, and then one day, your ass! Spidey thinks it's damn convenient that Reed had that gadget with him. Look, it's the penultimate page, we gotta wrap this up, and Spider-Man, if you had followed the Baxter building rules, none of this would have happened. Also, where's our coffee? Uh, I think you're mistaking me for somebody else. I've never met you before. Then how do you explain that half the Baxter building is in the negative zone? What a mess! Sorry, don't know what you're, uh, talking about. I'm a mysterious superhero, which is what a mysterious superhero would totally say. But we're lucky the Skrulls didn't use their shape-shifting powers. Who knows what devious plot they would strike with? What's that? No words in next month's comic? Son of a... So that's the that's the team up. What we're not, we're, I mean, we're giving you sort of the tone, but what we're, we're not giving you all of the jokes. There's an no. awful lot of jokiness in here. There is so many visual gags. There's so many labels around things, highlighting stuff in the in the book, and just breaking the fourth wall left and right. Yeah, I think Jim Mafood is somebody I already knew from the Clerks comic written by Kevin Smith. So ah, yeah. That, that's what I, I mean, now he's doing, uh, I think, what it, like his own property is uh, Girl Scouts. Girl Scouts, if, I, if I'm pronouncing girl right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you need all the R's you can get in that one. Yeah, so it, it really is, a lot of it is driven by the choice of artist, I think. You know, it's like, if mm-hmm. you're going to get that guy, then it's going to be, he's sort of, a, you know, it's like a style that's similar to I, Evan Dorkin or something. So it's going to be full of background jokes in addition to whatever the writer wants to bring to it and what Bendis decided to bring to it is really you know comic characters that know they're in a comic I'm not sure Spider-Man necessarily knows what's going on but the the FF have broken through not only the negative zone Mm -hmm. but the fourth wall they know we're there they're Grant Morrison characters or at least they're ambush bugs probably the better uh the better example, since they're they're seeing it as a comedy not a tragedy yeah well well, we also have that interesting bit early on with a Patsy Walker, as a, I think was wonderfully cast as this character who always shows up in these corporate videos, mm-hmm. training videos. She, there's not, this is not the only series that she does this in. Oh, so, really? Uh, yeah, I think she showed up once or twice in Ultimate Spider-Man that way. So it's just, just perfect for her to be there. But at the end of her little segment there where she's introducing the rules, it says, all visitors to Baxter Building must follow these important plot devices. Oops, I mean rules. So that's a... <laughs> That's definitely a nod to the audience right there. She knows. Yes. <laughs> she, she also and knows. She, and she's not in the FF, so it's I can see very much that, you know, in, in headcanon that the FF have done what you're talking about. They've ambush bugged it and seen the real world. <laughs> That's what I've, I've decided <laughs> happened. Uh, and, it, it, you know, later on, you know, they were probably aware of the retcon that made them teenagers again. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that came over. They're probably, you know, bitching about it in pages that we haven't seen. Yeah, that, I get to that later. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so if you're going to choose such an artist and you're going to, or you're, you choose mm-hmm. them because that's the kind of comic you want to write with them, it's like really a change of pace. And I mean, the next issue over is is man thing so we're going to do horror and you know we're going to get uh within a few issues we're getting uh you know dr strange with uh mckeever you know 
Oh, uh, yes. Ted yes, McKeever. Yes. So you've got a lot of range as far as artistically and then tonally mm-hmm. uh, in this series, which is something I like. I want the team-ups to feel different because you're teaming up with a different character and you're in a different reality, more or less, when you're visiting. So I like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I'd forgotten about the ultimate style in general is those damn... Um, the, the lettering style. Oh, yeah. In right. normal comics, this is something that, you know, when you talk to people who don't read comics normally, like uh, whenever I've done one of these with one of the girls, mm-hmm. the lettering is kind of hard for them to read when you're there. They're not used to comics uh, the way we, we're reading them. Because in comics, most of the time, the uh, the lettering is all capital letters. And that's just the style that was adopted way back and it stuck around. And it's not true of Euro comics. But it is true of American mm. comics. And uh, the Ultimate Universe decided to stand apart and use both capital and smaller case letters. And it's weird to me. It's always been weird to me, this. It was one of those funny things that I that somehow it snuck up on me and I didn't really realize they had done it until like a like the second time reading the first issue of Ultimate Spider-Man and seeing it there. It's like, wait a minute! It is kind of weird, but it's also... To a degree, it kind of did its job, at least for me, in the fact that it didn't stand out and thus be distracting in and of itself. But once you know it's there, you can't unsee it. So <laughs> now you're looking for it, and that's going to be a bit frustrating uh, and distracting at that point. Yeah. It's also odd that back at that there was a period that overlapped with this when I think Amazing Spider-Man started doing things in the same lettering, um, but it didn't last very long. I don't know why they exactly changed it, except for it being different than the rest of the of the comics that were out that time. One thing I do like is, you know, you mentioned Patsy Walker, uh, but we also get Herbie in here. And mm-hmm. uh, to me, Herbie, I, I, I think I probably encountered Fantastic Four comics before I ever saw any of the cartoon shows. But remember, mm. there was a cartoon show where they introduced Herbie or they had Herbie in there instead of the Human Torch, presumably right. so kids wouldn't set themselves on fire or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was right. actually a copyright problem. I, I've, I've been told, I, I've been saying the urban legend version of the story so often, but really it's because mm-hmm. there was like a copyright thing where they had the Human Torch optioned out for something else. And so it's it's very corporate and legal, the the reason why. But Herbie was sort of the member of the Fantastic Four, so having him here I think is is always fun. I like him as part of the Baxter Building supporting cast. Absolutely. I'm, I remember that watching that cartoon when it first came on the air myself back in the day. And then it's like, well, you know, and the missing human torch. Frankly, the corporate reason when you're a kid is just boring. So I much prefer the other explanation because then, you know, me and my friends, we could all kind of argue about it in that regard, too. So <laughs> that was more fun. That was much more fun than just like than, the, than thinking about property rights and things like that. It's like, nah. That's no good. But yeah, so Herbie's appearance is all, and he has a, he has a pretty big role in the, in the issue overall. He's not in all the issue, but he's got the whole funny bit in the beginning when he's helping with Peter's orientation and basically outs him as being Spider-Man, you know, knowing that he has powers and knowing he has a costume. And we see project, uh, x-ray scanner there of seeing his Spider-Man costume in the knapsack. And then there's a whole nother panel that's got, it's supposed to be computer writing, but it's basically all squiggles and the silhouette of his of the Spider-Man face in there. It's like, it's just fun. It's just a fun scene right there. Him doing his super science on Peter and Peter basically squirming like, uh, it's put him on the spot. right. And there. later he, he turns all Hal 2000 on him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he goes angry <laughs> and evil. I don't know. Uh, he's programmed for both. He can be friendly or not. Yeah, so that's that's fun. I also like how the they basically transplant the Kree and the Skrulls inside the negative zone. Probably, you know, Galactus is in the negative zone, and all of these characters mm-hmm. could be in there. Instead of having outer space as a place of interest, it's all, you know, inside the negative zone. It's all another dimension. And it becomes especially important to guard the portal, because then all these threats are inside there. Uh, and an army of Skrulls, that it gets really hard to draw because there are so many, <laughs> and that's oh, a yeah. plot point. Uh, you know, issues got to end basically because there's like too many scrolls to draw, uh, which is sort of how I felt about Secret Invasion. But no, <laughs> <laughs> and that- oh yeah, and those the scrolls themselves. Obviously, Mafood is having tons of fun, but because he's got scrolls with a yellow face with a tongue sticking out on him. One's wearing something that gotta be a diaper no, that's uh, what it looks like it's like oh man and one who's got the fake my favorite martian antenna on his head some wearing glasses it's, it, it's just it's just a wacky and no two of them look alike so he was working really hard on that 
And it's just, it's a hilarious bit. What are your uh, favorite jokes in here? Oh, golly, my favorite jokes in here. Back in the very beginning, when we see the videos of, uh, during the orientation video that Patsy Walker's giving, and see some of the clips of the Fantastic Four, there's one picture in there which shows very much Diablo gritting his teeth because he's basically being choked by by the thing's hand. And we don't see the rest of the thing. We just see his hand choking Diablo. And it's like a, and that's just, that's just so funny. There's a scene in the Marvel Comics office where we see some posters on the wall. And one of the posters is labeled Hip Hop Hawkeye. That's right there. That's another, <laughs> another good thing. And they have so much fun with the sound effects. I, I kind of did that in the synopsis with the, the guns firing with a, at Peter to protect the negative zone with a butta butta pui. It's like, what the? And one's named Zakaboomba. That's a, really a sound effect. But then later I caught on the other sound effects they had in there. Like one's called Cinemax After Dark and Bedlam. So there's, lots of, there's plenty of visual gags galore in the whole issue. What about yourself? I like the meta jokes. I always like the, the sort of meta stuff in Ambush Bug, which is one of my favorite characters. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that reminded me of that. I like uh, the Marvel Contest winner. Dude shows up. He's like, yeah, I'm the Marvel Contest winner. So usually when there was like a, a contest like this, you might win appearing yourself, appearing in your likeness inside a comic. Uh, so as soon as he appears, he gets fried by the Skrulls. <laughs> so- <laughs> So that's funny. I like oh, yeah. Joe Casado, who was the editor-in-chief at the time, appears in the comic, and he's talking to Martin Scorsese about you know writing Marvel comics. So back then, the idea was to, to find name writers, people who were known in other industries to write a comic, a bit like Kevin Smith writing Daredevil, or, you know, we, we've seen some of this, novelists writing comics, or... Uh, filmmakers writing comics. They always sell well, but I don't think the the results are always very good. Uh, and in this case, right. of course, Scorsese sort of hangs up the phone predictably, and which I think is, is kind of fun, given that just a couple of weeks ago, Scorsese was trashing Marvel movies or superhero movies <laughs> in the media. <laughs> he was probably asked about Joker, right? Because it's, it sort of apes yeah. his style. But uh, but he said, it's like, they're not really movies, they're... You know, they're not cinema. They're they're more like thrill rides. They're more like amusement park rides, uh, which isn't untrue. You know, but no, no, it's not. So so, uh, but with hindsight, this but. the fact that Joe Quesada calls him here and that he refuses to write a comic is. Is, is is pretty perfect. That's great timing on the part of having this doing this episode right now. Yeah, it's that's just, just great <laughs> serendipity there. But there's also like a big list. We're seeing lists and lists of uh, filmmakers mm-hmm. or other stars. It's like Madonna's in there. Uh, people who's, who are on the list uh, that Casada's calling to write a comic. So I don't know. It's like it made me think. Hmm, which one of these mm-hmm. celebrities would I have liked to see write a comic if this were told today? Direct. Uh, because they're mostly directors, uh, direct mm-hmm. an MCU movie. So I, I was I was looking at that list. And I couldn't quite make up my mind. <laughs> it is a pretty long list. It, it, well, and it's like it, it doesn't. Nobody actually changes the list, but it just still it keeps panel changing. to panel. It keeps changing about who's on the list, <laughs> and that which is too too crazy. But then we see names on there that people who have actually written some comics in the meantime, like we see Richard Donner on there, and he gets some Superman credit just a few years from now. Yeah, that's true. That was crazy timing. Russ Meyer, really? <laughs> oh my, that would be something. And Chris Rock, oh boy, that would be. And then there's like, then we see like George Carlin, who's now long gone. Oh, that's that's depressing right there. But hey, how about M Night Shyamalan? Oh, there we go. Well, the the comic ends on a twist. It's kind of odd. They've got Wes Anderson in here, but it's mm-hmm. it's really it's Wes Anderson plus Owen Wilson. So <laughs> so at this point, at this point is like, what have they seen? Is like. It's 2001. It's like Bottle Rocket and that's it or something. Is that like... Uh... Oh, that's too funny. So there are some oddities here based on, you know, just when this was. But mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's always amusing dating the comic and its references. I think mm-hmm. these ones have, have done pretty well for themselves. I mean, there's not a whole lot of names in there that I, I find, you know, it's like, oh, that's really of its time. It's You could still do that joke today and not change very many names. Right. You'd add more, but that's it. There's an art table nearby that, too, which has notes there that keep changing also, such as, you know, 
Call Mafood about new power pack. Uh, call Ricardo about Ultimate Rom Space Knight. That's an interesting property to bring into Ultimate Universe. Rom. Yeah. I wonder how that would have done. They could probably could not have done it back then Mm-mm. because of the copyright stuff. I was a big Rom fan at the time. So if you'd had an Ultimate Rom, I guess Ultimate Rom is maybe whatever they're doing now with the character at is it IDW that has the the license? Oh yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So I haven't right. I haven't read those, but uh, mm-hmm. but I guess that's the ultimate version. It's the version gotcha. where they can't use Dire Race. <laughs> yeah, right, right, absolutely. Because <laughs> they belong and, to and, Marvel, and only if he's a teenager. Yeah, in the <laughs> ultimate version, he's a teenager who gets the big armor. Uh, he speaks in lowercase that's letters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you know. That's how you know it's him. There was also another good visual gag way in the early which uh, of the issue with a drone camera that has a sign on it saying smile you're on fftv so that was pretty fun and there's so many references in this issue to food i mean it calls out every scroll who's carrying like a burrito or a taco and it's like there's all these little labels about the food that's in there and i realized the artist's name is ma food so i don't know if that's intentional or not <laughs> but that's just too funny Probably um, is. I mean, it, there's even some self-awareness, you know, when, on one mm-hmm. of the last pages when they're fighting, when Spider-Man's fighting in uh, the Marvel offices, there's like this big stack of pages and it's it's indicated that this is hate mail that Mahfoud will receive after this book hit the stand. So that's a joke that he added, right. presumably. Every time we're seeing that little script where, he, you know, it's pointing at something and saying burrito, uh, mm-hmm. where he's putting signs on things. That's his own letter writing. That's his own style. So it's not a scripted joke. It's a joke that he added in the background. Uh, He's not saying that people will complain about the tone of this issue so much as his art on this issue. (laughs) So that's pretty self-aware, self-deprecating, and it's fun. Absolutely. Well, And that's one of the questions I had for you about Ultimate Marvel Team-Up in general Mm -hmm. is – Do you feel like this was solely like a showcase and a chance to explore, or was it perhaps even a tryout book? I mean, when you're asking about if this was the tone they were going to try to take with the Ultimate FF going forward, would this be a tryout book for an ongoing Ultimate FF series with Mafu doing the artwork? I think part of it, it it was. I I don't think that was very uh, realistic that Ultimate Marvel would have this kind of FF series, you know, monthly. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's very realistic. Although if it had had like this huge fan love outpouring, I don't know, maybe, maybe just like by numbers alone. Uh, and Fantastic Four was one of the next series to, to, to go out into the Ultimate format, mm-hmm. except this wasn't it. The, the, you know, it wasn't this style yeah. and it wasn't even these characters as they're styled here. I don't know. It always felt like it was a sort of tryout book. If their Doctor Strange is going to be liked, then maybe, yeah, we do contract Ted McKeever or someone like him to do stories in this style, in the the same style as the book. I think that that was part of it, uh, I'm sure. But at the same time, it's like Bendis wanting to work with, you know, he's got like a, a large part of the control of this entire universe so he just wants to work mm-hmm. with different people. He still has a hand on his Spider-Man, and yet he can do all reinvent characters, which I think is a fun thing to do. If I were working on Ultimate Marvel, one of the joys of it would be reinventing things, just like there's probably a joy to reinventing the DC Universe after the crisis. I don't feel that joy when they rebooted it in the New 52, but maybe that's mm, me. Yeah. It felt more like a editorial had too much control, and it felt more like a, uh, a marketing exercise at that point. Uh, there is, at some point, you're allowed to play with the toys and reimagine them and fool around with their origins and their looks, and there has to be a joy to that. So I Mm -hmm. I think here we're feeling it. There's so much joy that we're just going to take the piss. We're just going to do a comedy (laughs) issue. A comedy (laughs) issue that reminds me a lot of, like, the humor in here, except, Mm -hmm. well, even the meta stuff. It reminds me of the better issues of the, do you remember the Marvel Adventures line? There's, like, a Spider-Man Adventures. There's, like, Avengers, I don't know. And it was just called Marvel Adventures. There was, like, a number of books and they were meant to be all ages, and they were often reprinted in these like digest size, more more or less. Mm-hmm. But the humor was like that. They, you know, they would fight Hydra, and uh, the goons, the Hydra goons, all had these little shticks going, and the sort of jokes that we see the Skrulls do here were going on. It, it wasn't as extreme as this, as indie looking as this, but it was the same kind of humor. So it felt like it's all ages, so the stakes don't feel so angsty, but 
the 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 humor that they add to it is a lot of it is like Jeff Parker and so those kinds of guys uh, who do a lot put a lot of humor in their superhero comics in the first place and they did some really great work on the Marvel Adventures line so I, at one point I preferred those to the normal continuity because they were one-off issues because they were like these fun stories full of humor and with a lot of plot it felt more less less decontracted like today's comics and it felt more like uh, you were getting more for your buck, basically. Especially with all the background jokes, with all the little speech bubbles giving us extra jokes that you might not get in a comic that thinks of itself as serious. So I felt like this was kind of like that. Yeah, I had not read much Marvel Adventures myself. I'd read just a little bit of it. But I do always appreciate more done in one nowadays with all the protracted storylines that we have to deal with. So yeah. having some... And making it accessible to new readers and especially younger readers is like I think it's is always a good thing, no matter what the rest of the internet says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, when we were kids, we were reading comics. Well, I'm, I'm assuming whoever listens to this. <laughs> when I was a kid, I'll, I'll just speak to the, uh, the first person. When I was a kid, I was reading comics. I was discovering superheroes. I was getting at that time a lot of done and won a lot of team-up books that introduced me to characters. It felt introductory in a way that many comics today don't because they're caught in these big, massive arcs uh, with big banners on the covers and all of that, and you need to buy more and more to just get the full sense of a story. Uh, back then, there was a lot of more recapping and done and won, but also as part of a continuing narrative. That was my introduction to comics, and why wouldn't I like comics like that today? I know I've aged, and yet when I'm thinking of superhero comics and the nostalgia of it, and I'm going back to those old stories that I love, well, stories that are mm -hmm. like that today do exist. And uh, I think people should seek them out more. Yeah, I think it even comes back to this series itself, because by and large, they kept the storylines to a maximum of two issues. So they were doing a really good job of making them mostly single issues, or at worst case, two issues. Just make it a little have some, a fun little adventure with Spider-Man, meeting somebody new, maybe being in an environment that it's not used to, getting a little different tone than the regular Ultimate Spider-Man series, and just moving on. Yeah, because the, the actual series was very much, you know, it shows that Bendis could do different things, because in the his style as people know it, and it was very true of Ultimate Spider-Man, was that a single story, something that would have been told in one issue in the 60s, took six to eight issues and makes up an entire trade paperback. He sort of stretches out time by giving us long conversations almost in real time. I mean, there is that one issue of Ultimate Spider-Man that is just a conversation in Peter's bedroom, right? Mm -hmm. uh, famously. So oh, yeah. this is Bendis' style. Here he's showing, because he's writing, writing most of these stories, he's showing that he can do the, the one-off. He can do like a, a story that, well, I say that. <laughs> this, I'm not sure this is an example in the sense that he never gets to the end of the story. The characters have to say, oh, time's up. <laughs> <laughs> time's up. But normally, this is a Bendis book. This would last like eight issues. But uh, we don't have any more time. So here's the Deus Ex Machina Resolve. And let's all go home. Exactly. It's actually the wrong page. He says, we're on page uh, 21. It's a, No, it's page 20. Sorry. There's just a page <laughs> missing. Uh, unless the original issue, you can tell me, does the original issue have like a sort of a, a, a front piece or something? Like, you know, a page with all the credits or something uh, that adds the page? Right. It because in the not. trade, it doesn't. In the trade, it's just... It does not. And they... And they deliberately did not number the pages so i'm having, i'd have to go back through and count the pages myself to do that and i'm too lazy to do that so i'm just gonna take it because i did and it, it i i don't know did i maybe i miscounted maybe there's like a well they do page. have oh wait they do have the double there's page, a double page double yeah. ish the double page splash page. okay maybe they're right then maybe that might it's be, that might be what it one, is one two three four 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. This is great podcasting, by the way. It is. 17, 18. Do it in French. 19, 20, Do it in French. 21. No, it's a 21-page book, and they say, we're on page 21, but they're actually uh. on page 20. <laughs> Rest my case. Apparently, Reed got his degree in everything besides mathematics, I guess. Yeah, That's well, it's meta. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Where are we? we know we're on such and such a page. You know, you're off by a number. Who knows how you're gauging your own reality? Maybe he's counting the cover. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, the ultimate no prize. <laughs> 
So who fared better in all of this, uh, in this sort of aborted story? Uh, how, first of all, how well does this fit each of the characters' stories or atmospheres? Tim, is this more of a Spider-Man story or is it more of a Fantastic Four story? Such as they oh, are. I mean, uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, by playing by the rules, by the rules answer, it's definitely a, a Fantastic Four story. I mean, it takes place in the Baxter building. It has Skrulls, Negative Zone. And even the Fantastic Four have had more than one visit to the Marvel offices in the mainline uh, storyline. So it definitely feels more like a Fantastic Four story. But obviously, you know, as much as a tongue-in-cheek or sticking your tongue out at the reader and giving a full-on raspberry of a Fantastic Four story can be. But also, if I don't go by the rules, this is a Jim Mafood issue all the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's neither, it's not anything about the heroes. The heroes are there for him to have something to make jokes with. <laughs> so it's his issue all the way. But playing by the rules, it's more of an FF story. What do you think? Well, you say that, I and mean, at the same time, Spider-Man is our, is our point of view character. We're with him. We're discovering mm-hmm. them with, and and even as a team up, we didn't really mention this, but it's not much of a team up. Uh, no, that's true. He goes to the building. He sets off the alarms. He you know he frees the scrolls accidentally. It's not clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Fantastic Four are called away on an emergency, which turns out to be bogus or whatever. But we don't see that emergency. We don't see the Fantastic Four what they're doing. So Spider Man is fighting the scrolls alone. It's kind of his story. And then when they come back, they just fix everything. So there's no real Spider Man Fantastic Four action. Uh, you know, as far as the team up goes, it's a, mm-hmm. it's just him crashing the Baxter building and getting involved in one of their adventures, but they're not there. <laughs> so it's like, it's supposed to be a tribute to Amazing Spider-Man number one, you know, where he visits the right. Fantastic Four and maybe he wants, uh, I don't know, cut me a check or something, guys. <laughs> uh, you know, can I join <laughs> oh, yeah. and, and, and get some of this Fantastic Four money? But, but, right. uh, so it's kind of this, but at the same time, it's, uh, you know, they, they don't really participate. In the story that we're watching. So it feels like it's a Spider-Man story in which he visits the Fantastic Four's world, but they don't really have any time for him. Right. And <laughs> well, because it's, but that's also the thing is that it definitely feels like the Fantastic Four's world if you're separating out the day to day life. Yeah. This, does, this doesn't feel anything like the sort of thing he runs into in his own comic book of Ultimate Spider-Man. So you don't get a much of a, of a, of this feel. At, at this time later when the ultimates are introduced and that becomes more of a thing then his world starts to get a little bit more sci-fi and more superheroes are part of just his life but at this point it's like yeah this is spider-man being plopped into an ff issue what it made me think of is that issue of ff where like half the story was the trapster trying to break into the baxter building he basically gets defeated by the baxter building mm-hmm. and it's like so it's a it's an ff story and the ff aren't in it at all <laughs> but, but it still is that most all the way an ff story yeah so it almost kind of works like that yeah i feel flipping through the the trade paperbacks here is that marvel team up was very much that that is to say spider-man in another atmosphere in another world every time mm-hmm. it's spider-man meets the mystical but he'll never do that in his own series it's spider-man meets a like a swamp monster but that would never happen in his own series so he's being dropped into horror stories humor stories uh, sci-fi stories, fantasy stories, but uh, kung fu stories, you know, mm-hmm. gritty urban vigilante stories. It's like he's visiting those stories. It's a team up with that world, that part of the world. Makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Cool moves. What is Spider-Man's coolest move? Whew. Interesting. I the coolest. The thing that made me laugh the most was him at the end playing dumb that he was actually Peter. The FF are grilling him about what happened to their building, and he's like. Um, I don't know who you're talking about. I, I'm just a superhero. I just was swinging by, and I don't know what you mean about getting coffee. I, that, that, that just cracked me up. <laughs> and in a humor issue, I guess the humor has to be part of the coolness. Although you Absolutely. could, you could argue that Spider-Man fighting an entire army of scrolls single-handedly is pretty damn cool. He did very well. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. He did very well, and even better than he typically does in his own series. <laughs> yeah. at, at, no. yeah. He doesn't do this. He doesn't usually do this well in fighting in this regular series. Right. And, so, and even Jim Mafood, Jim Mafood, for all the the humor and the cartooniness, mm-hmm. uh, does some pretty good fighting moves in here. I mean, uh, you know, the the, the page where. Uh, they're crashing through the uh, Jokasada's office. Mm-hmm. You've got some acrobatic fighting going on in with very with small figures, 
So he knows his anatomy. He knows what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's a, a very accomplished cartoonist. So beyond his style, he actually can do superhero action. It's in there. That page was a close second for me. On, on the cool moves part. Mm. I, I, it definitely is very cool, especially where we have Spider-Man's upside down webbing one scroll and holding the other between his, his ankles, and which is a, a really dynamic set of action going on there. It was really close. But I had to give the being a hu- humor issue, I kind of went more for the humor. I, I'd say the Fantastic Four's coolest move because not, they're not in it much. <laughs> this is no, the thing. no, they're not. The, the coolest move that they do pull is the mirror of what you're saying, is the mirror of your own cool move, mm-hmm. is when uh, they know exactly who Spidey is. And, you know, he's going, uh, no, I, I, you know, you you're, you must be mistaken. Uh, we've never met. And they, they just keep going. To them, it's all normal. To them, it seems right. bizarre that he would deny it because they're not going to reveal his identity. They're just part of this superhero world. And he's a superhero and they know his real name. And I mean... Where's my coffee? It's it's like all normal. We're sending this superhuman, one of New York's premier heroes, out for coffee, and it's normal to us. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I like that. It shows that their world is way above everyone else's. It's a heightened reality. Exactly. Well, and in Ultimate Universe, I can't remember if they've established how much of pre-existing superheroes there were before Ultimate Spider-Man and Ultimate X-Men came along. This kind of implies that the FF have been around for a while in this issue, but that gets retconned away pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like being a thing known by the general public, relatively speaking, Spider-Man's only been around for five days by Bendis' time. No, probably more like a few months. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's still so in the same like, grade, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So like the idea of secret identities is just something you read in comic books. The FF are living this like they don't do a secret identity. Why are you? What are you worried about? Especially to us, we're superheroes too. It's like, but it's like this also shows you know Ultimate Peter. He still doesn't know what he's doing. He's just trying to get by. Well, what's his dumbest or weirdest move? Okay, the the thing that got me the most was just his monologue when he is sent out for coffee. He's just griping, 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 and it is just Bendis putting in plenty of censored out words here and there. And it's like, ah, that's, I know that that was a, that's a style thing that he does, even in Ultimate Spider-Man. I don't really have a problem with it. It's just a little overdone in this issue, in in that particular sequence. It's like, I don't really think Spider-Man would be an HBO only showing of a, of a TV show. I, I want to see it more of an all ages thing. It's like just even him doing that's like, okay, all right. So you're trying to establish that Peter Parker is more of a modern New Yorker. Okay. All right. I don't hang around with a bunch of modern new New Yorkers. So I don't know, but that just was a bit much for me. I, I swear like a pirate. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is normal, but yeah, in a comic, it isn't, uh, you know, it's, right. uh, well, maybe Ultimate Spider-Man would be like the Titans show. Yeah, I can give on that. Yes. But back, <laughs> back at the time this book came out, it's a little different. That was still mentality might've been a little different. It is weird. Vote up for the FF. Uh, the FF, their other scene, which is the, the giant coffee machine. It looks more like a coffee pot. Doesn't look like a coffee pot. It looks like a big. It's a big coffee mug. Yeah. You can see the handle on the side. So it's an FF logo on it. Sure. You got a branding. <laughs> branding is important. Yes. Uh, because in this, we, I mean, there is a list. I love that. The, the list of, um, everything that Reed Richards has apparently invented. <laughs> It's 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 hilarious. Yeah, let me find it here. I, I need to read this out for people. Let me get some bifocals on here. <laughs> so, among his discoveries, I mean, there's the negative zone, sure, but there's also the joystick, marshmallow fluff, the compact disc, the kilowatt. I don't know how that works. Uh, surround sound stereo, MTV two. Hostess Twinkies, boxer shorts, mainstream acceptance of comics as an art form, rack and pinion steering, the screensaver, and so many, many more. (laughs) He invents things across all areas of human endeavor. (laughs) Uh, And how angry would Ultimate Reed Richards have been when the Hostess Twinkies were almost discontinued? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's uh, less, less money in his pocket. What would that have meant to the safety of the universe? With no FF funding from Twinkies. Uh, and as we know, Twinkies uh, do fuel a lot of supervillain crime, according to those yeah. those ads. Yeah, so... Absolutely. Uh, it, it, it's all related in some way. <laughs> so this coffee pot thing is just stupid. It's just a silly machine. I mean, if at least it looked like some sort of 
I don't know, big espresso or, or, you know, cappuccino machine or something that had mm-hmm. malfunctioned. I don't know. It's just silly to me. And uh, as far as uh, sending up the characters, I think something more clever could have been done. Something a little more, maybe playing with continuity the way the rest of the issue has would mm-hmm. have been better. So I think that's the weird it's not necessarily dumb, but it, it's at least weird. What about the friendly farewell? It's a team up tradition, but how does this one rate? <laughs> this sort of, uh, oh. we gotta go. See you later. Yo no hablo inglés. I don't, that was of Spider-Man trying to break out there. It was, uh, it was, it was not as friendly, but it wasn't, uh, unfriendly since they were very upset about the Baxter building destruction. So, uh, and looking to Spider-Man to take the blame for it. So, eh. I think they'd be cautiously interested in teaming up with Spider-Man again in the future. Okay. And they did, right? Just in that, in that Spidey um, super, super special. Super special, yeah. It's more like it, that is actually closer to being like Amazing Spider-Man number one, where he does break into the building just to see if he can get a job. They definitely did not welcome him with open arms. They were not outright hostile, but, you know. They teased the friendship between Spider-Man and the Human Torch that was true of the um, Silver Age. They, they kind of teased that with the, you know, with Johnny in therapy. So there is that, uh, but at the same time in this, there is no connection between the two younger heroes. Really, Spider-Man interacts with Reed Richards mostly, mm-hmm. I guess, you know, at the end. Yes. He's a spokesperson for the team. So it's a it's an okay goodbye, but it's not uh it's it's more or less a joke about what's coming up next. Right. And he does interact with Sue a bit as well. She's also one who's like putting on the mom voice of you didn't follow the rules. <laughs> that was nothing they tweaked on the origin here, which I think they've kept in the movies more or less uh, each of the movies is of Sue also being a scientist. Right. That's an aspect that they do carry over into the upcoming ultimate Fantastic Four comic book as well is that Sue is another big brain on par almost with Reed, but she has a different specialty than Reed. Right. So you so. got two scientists and you got two pilots, mm-hmm. basically, because Johnny is a NASCAR driver. Exactly. We'll take a break for a couple of promos and we'll be back with our bonus team ups. Coming soon from Amalgam Comics. Epithets go wild in Ultimate Amalgam's new epic team book. Don't miss the ultimate, fantastic, amazing Spider-4 as they go head to qualified head with Dr. Green Doom's frightful, sinister 4-6, to six, depending on pun who shows up. Amalgamated ultimate fun only from Ultimate Amalgam Comics. Hello, this is Ashford from Feathers and Foes and the Straight Outta Gallifrey podcast. And I want to talk to you about my new venture with bad girl Cassandra Kane. Something in the way she moves. Born from two assassins and the ashes of Batman No Man's Land. Something in the way she woos me. Join us in 2017, Bad Girl Cassandra Kane Podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. We will explore this character, and some of it will get dark, some of it will be fun, a lot of it will be triumphant, and I hope that you're there with us. Here we go, January 2017 and beyond. The Bad Girl, Cassandra Kane Podcast. It's just, she has that something. One final feature, the bonus team-up in which each of us proposes a perfect Ultimate Spider-Man or Ultimate FF team-up. It's up to you which one. All right. Well, I chose Ultimate FF most because Ultimate Spider-Man, he got lots of team-ups throughout the series anyway. But Ultimate FF has had a fun idea here. I've kind of pictured them and the Inferior Five. So the setup is the Ultimate FF explore a new area they call the Null Zone, but it turns out to actually be comic book limbo, where they encounter the Inferior Five. And not just any Inferior Five, specifically Phil Folio's version from the 1991 Angel and the Ape miniseries, because both of these teams are played for comedy, and they quickly afterwards get retconned into Oblivion. So the FF are stuck in this comic book limbo and trying to get home while the inferior five kind of help, but it stymies any of their attempts to get home. And they generally get on the FF's nerves. The question at the end is, does the FF actually get home or do they stay and explore and become heroes of the null zone, which in turn forces 
the creation of the new Ultimate Fantastic Four comic book series along the way. Smart. This would it more or less would end also with a, a, an editor's door, <laughs> our hearing mm-hmm. voices through it, sort of thing. Makes exactly. sense. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> I also picked the Ultimate FF. I'm teaming them up uh, with Monel versus the Phantom Zone villains. Or again, we're Ooh. we're both doing zones. In yeah, this. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody sets the the dial wrong on that negative zone portal, uh, accesses the Phantom Zone instead. Monel is currently a ghost in there, biding his time before he can join the Legion of Superheroes. I blame Bendis for uh, making a Superman the movie joke in the comic for, I think, sparking this idea in me. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is why. So essentially, uh, you can imagine the team up. It's uh, I'm not playing it for laughs necessarily, but um, it could be. I mean, there's plenty of, uh, of joke fodder in there if uh, somebody wanted to play that one for laughs. Could you picture it as a cover with Monel in the front holding ultimate thing in his hand above his head while the rest of the FF are strewn around on the ground below them? Uh, is John Byrne drawing my comic? He might be drawing the cover. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the interior, but he might be drawing the cover. Mm-hmm. Well, I've seen that cover several times. Okay, all right then. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thanks for teaming up with me, Tim. Is there anything you want to point people to? Sure, thank you. Um, I'm a regular guest host with Ashford Wright on his Batgirl Cassandra Kane podcast on the Right On Network. It shares a feed with the Hunters Podcast, so you can find it at thehunterspodcast, all one word, dot com. I'm sort of the Don Imus to Ashford's Howard Stern, which I don't get, but it's a line from the comic book, so I thought it was relevant. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been a guest twice on season two of Cheers Cast with Ryan Daly, right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And also for Halloween 2018, so that was last year, I provided the voice of Mephisto for a podcast crossover. Could it happen in 2019? Maybe? Well, maybe something's in the works. Well, Halloween will be passed by the time this put out, so we'll know the answer. Well, hope springs eternal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And for more of my misadventures, you can follow me on Twitter at TimPrice17. And uh, as Time Priest, uh, you do feature quite a lot in the comment section of Ohatbu or Not, and I I think the the girls would be uh, happy to know that uh, we actually collaborated on a podcast today. Yes, indeed, and and I have to send a a shout-out. Hi, girls! Love you. No way they're listening to this. Uh, <laughs> well, thanks again. I'll be back to talk about uh, your feedback for from for for and from our previous episode. Uh, thanks again, Tim. So, which is the hottest Marvel character? Iron Man. Eight Man. I can't decide between Professor X and Magneto, so both. Loki. Is Wolverine Marvel? What about uh, White Tiger? What about uh, White Tiger? Uh, <laughs> Doc Samson. Who's who's he? He? Star Fox. That's a video game. The girls go on a journey to determine every Marvel character's hotness in Ohatmu or Not, the official handbook of the Marvel Universe podcast you didn't know you wanted. Available on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. And now here's your feedback on our previous episode, our Halloween episode, in fact, where Martin Gray and I discussed The Brave and the Bold, number 93, by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams, Batman and the House of Mystery. So a real oddball. All these comments are from the Fire and Water Podcast Network website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. Ange says, uh, great episode. Always happy to hear Mart. And this seems the perfect issue for him. Wonderful plot recap. I can't imagine the current Batman leaving Gotham for a month, but I love the idea. And Cave of Mystery, I totally buy that. He's referring to our amalgam promo. Rob Kelly says, I love this issue of Brave and the Bold, as well as the idea of Batman taking a vacation. Now, of course, there are 17 other members of the Batman family to pick up the slack. But back in these more innocent days... Uh, yeah, innocent. Vietnam, Nixon, he says. Uh, Batman was the whole deal. I wonder if crime went down in Metropolis, Central City at all, because all the supervillains flooded into Gotham during the month Bats was gone. I imagine they didn't advertise it. I would argue any story featuring the House of Mystery is a House of Mystery, and the guest star is just that, even in their book like this. And, of course, Neil Adams is the exact right artist for such a story. Yeah, so ironically, it seems less realistic for him to take a vacation now. When he actually has enough people to cover his shifts, although he did take some leaves of absence, uh, whether, uh, you know, usually forced 
by a broken back or being sent back to the uh, time of the cavemen. Chris Franklin says, great episode, fellas. I think the Batman of this time would take a vacation. He wasn't nearly as obsessed as he would later become. Heck, the Earth-1 Superman and Batman first learned each other's secret identities on a vacation cruise. Oddly enough, O'Neill and Adams would be two of the creators steering the character into darker, grittier territory. What would eventually lead later creators to examine Batman in a more deeply psychological manner, resulting in the obsessed, damaged man-child who is often hard to even like that we have today. I don't think that he'd take a vacation just because Jim Gordon told him so, however. The story was um, a mystery to me for a long time. I heard about it for decades, but didn't get to read it until I got the huge uh, Brave and the Bold Bronze Age omnibus. It's quite a good mashup, but as Martin pointed out, there was a lot of gothic horror in Batman and, in fact, the whole DC line at the time anyway. And yes, I wonder how the Superman House of Mystery story in DC Comics Presents holds up in comparison. Um, we'll have to cover that one at some point. Captain Entropy says, I read this tale in some collection, not sure where, and couldn't agree more with your opinions. Great story, but superb art. As for the reliance on national stereotypes in comics, it would be fun to flip that on its head. We could have Alpha Flight or the Global Guardians visit the US and find it populated entirely by gangsters and cowboys. And I mean, if you look at some British media, you get a lot of that. Mike Dana says, a great team up. Well done to the both of you for really bringing out the gothic spookiness that this story is trying to evoke. I have an unnatural obsession with any of those old DC comics that have the bat symbol in the corner. Not the Batman symbol, but that house of mystery bat in the top right corner. As a kid, I always convinced myself that any comic with that bat on the cover was the sign of a good horror comic. That wouldn't scare me too much. I wasn't always correct, but I convinced myself I was right. A fantastic show for listening to on this Halloween. Tim Price, who was just on this episode, says, Always great to have an episode with Martin. If I could do it with the accent, I totally would. What a wild issue. Kane was my favorite part, so snarky and irreverent throughout. He completely stole the show. As ridiculous as it seems for Batman to take a month off, that's not the craziest bit. To me, it's that Commissioner Gordon is just walking around Gotham with a cruise ship ticket in his pocket. Did he really buy it in advance just for Batman? Or some other reason? The mind boggles. Sim B says, My first time visiting this site, and I get to hear Martin from the Fantastic Too Dangerous for a Girl blog and one of the great Legion of Super Bloggers voices for the first time. Thanks for a great episode. And now I'm going to have the actual voices running through my head when I read the chaps in the future. Well, welcome aboard, Sim. We move on to Gothos Mansion, who says, Thanks for covering this issue. I first discovered the story in the Treasury, Batman's Strangest Cases, a.k.a. one of the most awesome treasuries ever published. Uh, okay, I always thought Batman tripping over the board and the hoods, gun misfiring, were the natural results of either Kane to get Batman into the House of Mystery, or the of King Yu to get Batman to his castle. Likewise, whichever the two was manipulating events caused the image of Sean's grandfather in the waves to make sure Sean and Bruce met. If I have a complaint about this story, and I really don't, since King Hugh takes out the main villain with the picture frame, couldn't he have just killed off the villains without Batman's help? Yeah, I know we wouldn't have a story if Batman didn't appear, and that may seem like a nitpick. I really do love the story and have, and have since 1978. Ward Hill Terry says, Oh, I love this story, but I first read it in black and white, and it wasn't until The Treasury, Batman Strangest Cases, that I saw how Kane was colored to show that he wasn't in the panel. I don't care that Batman went on vacation, no matter how improbable. I like seeing Bruce Wayne being a nice guy. I'm going to nod to Siskoid's panel-by-panel -panel podcast now. That, that panel on the bottom of page two is so good, mostly because Adams has drawn the background, but not overdrawn it. The buildings behind the police car are suggested by careful crosshatch shadow. Just enough detail is given to the windows to make them clearly be windows without drawing too much attention to them. Batman in the foreground is mostly shadow, which makes the central image the arrival of the police, the only bright color on the panel. One of my pet peeves of modern comics, anything after 1985, say, is when an artist lavishes attention on an important detail. That may be much easier now with the aid of computers and digital coloring, but not everything has to be shown all the time. And you're right, Terry, that's not how the eye works anyway. We keep certain things in focus and other things not in focus. And that helps us understand our world. Jimmy McGlinchey from uh, the Irish Embassy says, Excellent show, Cisco, and kudos to Martin on his Irish accent. As someone from Ireland, it always annoys me in modern comics how tiddly diddly eye some comic creators depict Ireland in the books. 
It would be similar to people from the UK seeing Big Ben in every depiction of England, no matter where in England the comic is supposed to be based in. However, given the time period the book is taking place, the depiction of Ireland, particularly the rural north, is quite accurate by O'Neill and Adams. The place depicted is fictitious, but based off actual names in that there is an Aran Islands on the west coast of Ireland, while there is another island called Aranmore to the northwest coast. And I agree, Jimmy, it can sometimes feel like... Uh, the Irish in uh, American media are all, are all from Cork. So that's this particular mailbag. If you want to contribute to the next one, just go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and leave a comment there. I'll also be reading you at the Fire and Water Podcast uh, Facebook page and on Twitter, where we are, FW Podcasts. Teaming up with me financially this month is Alan W. Wright. And he's done that through Patreon. So if you go at patreon.com slash Podcasts. You'll find the network's Patreon page, so if you like this sort of content, you can contribute financially with a one-time or monthly donation, and that will unlock rewards, including, especially for this show, every so often, you decide what team-up I'm going to cover. That's true of the Christmas episode that's coming up next. It was chosen by Patreon patrons by way of a special poll, and there will be more of those polls coming in 2020. That's it for me. Thanks again to Tim Price. And come back next time for another amazing superhero team-up. Because after all, justice is a team effort. But wait, there's more. It's me, Deadpool, with a special offer. See Fan4 in theaters this Friday, and I'll throw in my Deadpool trailer for free. Is this a shameless plug? Absolutely.